Today I want to go back to this spiritual worldview series. The scripture says, we do not look at the things which are seen, which are temporary. We look at the things which are unseen, which are eternal. The things that are unseen are eternal. It's not mythology. It's not idea. It's not superstition. It's not wishing. It's not imaginary, spiritual war kind of stuff. And it is, it is real and it is eternal. Jesus said, you have eyes, but you're not seeing. So I want to open your eyes to what's going on in spirit realm and what's going on in God's world. We've been talking about what's going on in heaven. We've talked about the, what the Bible tells us about the throne of God and what's going on around him and what is he doing right now. And He's not up there building mansions for us. Uh, he is actually establishing the kingdom of his son. And, and we talked about the angels. And two weeks ago, I talked to you about the devil. And it is so hilariously ironic that I got so much excited feedback after I preach on the devil. People leave encouraged. But yeah, it was, it was a good day. So if you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that online. We're just going to continue on with the scripture we left off with two weeks ago, Revelation 12, verses 3, 4, and 7 to 9. Here we go. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So this battle didn't last very long. Uh, it, was, it was really fast. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the devil was Lucifer, an angel, and he was a covering angel on the throne of God, and he decided he wanted to be God, and a third of the angels decided to join him in a rebellion against the Most High, and they paid for it very severely and very quickly. This verse says that the dragon, or the devil, the Satan, the serpent of old, drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So in Bible symbolism of parables and prophecy, the stars are connected with angels. Jesus says in Revelation 1, the stars are angels. So it has been the 2,000-year-long interpretation of the church that this verse means that Satan took a third of the angels with him in his rebellion against God. And then it says, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and his angels, and the devil was cast out and the angels were cast out with him. I'd only want to just point out that the devil has angels that sided with him. Matthew 25, Jesus says the same thing in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Then he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. So Jesus's context is who will be entered into the kingdom of heaven and who will be rejected. But uh, for now, I just want to point out the fact that Jesus says the devil has angels and hell was prepared for them. In Jude 6, it says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. In Second Peter 2, 
is nearly a mirror image copy of Jude, the book of Jude. And 2 Peter 2.4 says, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So far, I just want you to see that the Bible makes it very plain. There were angels who sinned. They joined Satan in his original rebellion, and they were cast out of heaven and thrown into hell. You with me? Those four verses right there. Okay, now I want to show you seven more scriptures where Paul uses a phrase or a list of words repeatedly seven times in the New Testament. And I want to connect these two. So we're going to go to Colossians 1, 15 to 17. This is talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Yea, Jesus. That verse ought to make you really excited. We have no reason to fear anything. Jesus made everything. Jesus is over everything. He's conquered everything. Jesus runs the show. Yay, Jesus. But here in the middle of this passage, Paul says, Jesus created everything on heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible, and the invisible, he expands that to a list of four things, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. Doesn't explain what those are. He just throws out these four things that are invisible creations of God. They're all authority terms, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. Moving to the next passage, Romans 8, 37 to 39. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yea, God! We keep looking up these verses on the dark side and we keep getting excited about Jesus. Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Paul lists all these things that cannot separate us, not even death, not angels, not principalities or powers. Again, he doesn't define what those are, but there's something that's trying to separate us from the love of God. And Paul says they can't do it. Amen? All right, next scripture. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Yay, Jesus! Again, Jesus wins! These are awesome passages. In all of these passages, Jesus is up here. Principalities and powers and thrones and dominions and spiritual hosts of wickedness, they're all down here, and they're always defeated. They're always losers. And they can't separate us from the love of God. But this gives us a little bit of a, more of a clue that they're in heavenly places. Jesus is seated next to God in heavenly places, but far above principality and power. We're beginning to see these are spiritual beings that are trying to separate us from God. They are enemies of God. They are enemies of us. But God has exalted Jesus above them all. Jesus created them. He defeated them. And they can't stop us. Next verse, also from Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 10. Now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There it is again. Principalities and powers live in the heavenly places. They're spirits. And this says that the wisdom of God, and the context is salvation of us, is being displayed by the church to them. I don't have time to go into the the context of the whole chapter, but to narrow it down and modernize it, the church is God's trash talk to the principalities of hell. 
Ha! You thought you had them. Look what I did. You lied to them. You filled them with filth and perversion and you were certain they were yours. Look what I did. The manifold wisdom of God in the context is salvation. The greatness of God's plan of salvation is on display by us to them. We're his trophy that he throws in their face from the cross. Look what I did. Yeah. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here we get quite a few more details about who these principalities and powers are. They are the rulers of darkness. They are the spiritual hosts of wickedness. God tells us, this is Paul writing it, but it's God's word, says, put on your armor, put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, and don't be ignorant about Satan's strategies. You are not fighting other people. You may think it was them that hurt you, but it's spirit stuff. Hello? You're not wrestling. You're not competing. You're not fighting with other people. You're fighting with some really serious spiritual stuff. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. There's principalities and powers at work. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Jesus trumps, he defeated, he ranks higher than any host of spiritual darkness, and you are in him. But again, we have the words principality and power. And lastly, Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers. Obviously, that happened at the cross and the resurrection. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Triumph doesn't mean victory. Triumph is a parade in the Roman Empire. It was a parade to celebrate the victory. Where they would, the generals would ride in on decorated horses, like in Ben-Hur, the opening scene where you know, the tile falls off the roof. and hits. That's a triumph that's happening there in that scene. They would, the generals would ride in on their decorated horses and they would have drag their captives behind them in chains. Sometimes only handcuffed, sometimes with hooks in their nose. This says Jesus came out of the grave triumphing over the powers of hell. He drugged them by the nose. <laughs> he didn't just win, he publicly displayed their humiliation in heaven. Go, Jesus! Yeah! All right, so principality is in the Bible seven times. And it's not an everyday English word, but it used to be back in the days when there were kings and princes. The principality is just, it's a really easy word. It means the realm or the jurisdiction of the authority of a prince. Like kingdom is the realm of authority of a king. A principality is the realm of authority of a prince. What a kingdom is to a king, a principality is to a prince. Yes? It's not some woo-woo spiritual warfare word. It just means a prince. And these are spiritual, evil, dark princes of hell. That's what a principality is. The Bible never really explains very much about 
who the principalities are, where they came from, or what they do. But it does give us one little episode in Daniel chapter 10 where we get this tiniest little peek that is fascinating about what goes on in the spiritual world regarding princes. So Daniel chapter 10, we're coming in the middle of the story. Daniel has an angel appearing before him that is glowing like burnished bronze or like he looks like he's on fire. He's in the shape of a man, but it's very clearly an angel has appeared to Daniel and Daniel is so overcome with the glory of this angel that he falls on his face and he, not like John tried to worship the angel in Revelation. He's just, he can't stand up. He's overcome with the presence of God. And so we're coming in in verse 10 in the middle of this episode. Suddenly a hand touched me which made my knees and hands tremble and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. And he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I have been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. And suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips and I opened my mouth and I spoke saying to him who stood before me, my Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I have retained no strength. How can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor any breath is left in me. And then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me and said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be to you, be strong. Yes, be strong. That's a great verse. Memorize that. Then he said, now I must fight with the prince of Persia, and when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will then come, and no one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. The word prince is there five times. Backing up in the story, Daniel has been fasting and praying 21 days. This angel shows up and he says, don't fear, Daniel, your words were heard the moment you started praying, but it took me 21 days to get here because I've been having to fight against the prince of Persia. Now, there are a few commentators who want to remove the spiritual stuff out of this story and claim that it was the actual king of Persia. But he's talking to an angel. It's an angel saying these things. The commentators, they're nearly unanimous. He's talking about a spirit. That This prince of Persia is resisting whoever the angel is that's talking to Daniel. We're never told who he is. So he says, I have been fighting the prince of Persia, resisting me 21 days. And then he says, but Michael, one of the chief princes, and we know the New Testament says Michael is an archangel. He's the top highest ranking angel, uh, came and helped me. And I got through and now I'm here with you. He says, I have to go back to fight the prince of Persia. And after that, it'll be the prince of Greece. And no one helps me in these things except Michael, your prince, he says. Nobody believes that the angel means that Michael is Daniel's personal prince. The your there is the Jews. It's, it's Israel. Michael is the prince of Israel. So we have these spirit princes. Seven times Paul calls them principalities. The old, in the Old Testament, in this vision of Daniel, an angel tells Daniel there's a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece, and Michael is your prince, meaning the prince of the Jews or the prince of Israel. So we have these spirits, both holy angels and unholy angels who are princes of territories greece persia and israel or the jews but it's not just lines on a map greece is not just a a piece of land it's a group of people 
right? Greece is a nation that, yes, includes a border on a map, but it's the people. And there's a prince of Persia. And so these beings are fighting each other, but they're, they have territorial authority. There's specific geographical and national authority. These things are ruling over the kingdoms of men and the nations of men. So some people would say there's a prince of America and there's a principality for every region. And I can't prove it biblically, but it's not a stretch to say that. I don't know. I can't claim that it is. But but I do want to answer the question, is it biblical to think of spirits as having territorial authority? Well, I'll bet you know who showed up to Jesus and told him he had authority over all these territories. Hello? The devil took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the spirit world. Oh, wait a minute. I messed that up. It doesn't say that. It says all the kingdoms of this world. And Satan said, I have all authority and I will give it to you. We know Satan is the father of lies, but he's not lying there. Because if he was, it wouldn't have tempted Jesus. Jesus would have scoffed at that statement. Ah, I know who you are. You don't have any authority. But it was tempting to Jesus because the temptation is, you don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to go to hell to become the king of kings. I'll make you the king of kings right here. Just bow down and worship me. Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, all this is mine, and I'll give it all to you. So, yes, Satan is the head honcho. He's the king of the abyss. He's the prince of demons. He's the lord of flies. All these names that we went over two weeks ago. He is the, the ruler of hell. But he's got princes, generals, administrators. The third of the angels that he took with him when he left heaven. You with me? So we talk like that in our natural government terms. You know, when the Old Testament says the king built this palace. We know that the king was not out there doing it with his own hands. The king said, let this palace be built, and it was built. Let this road be built, and it was built. um, We said all the time, we said, the president did this or that, and we understand it wasn't the president. It was the secretary of agriculture or the secretary of the Navy or somebody in the administration did it. But Trump gets blamed for it all because he's the head honcho, he's in charge, right? We have language like, the message came from the White House today, da-da-da. We know the White House did not say anything. The White House stood there. But the White House means the administration, right? So when the Bible says, when Jesus says, on this rock I build my kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, don't think of gates. That means it's the same sense as the White House. Like the administration of hell will not prevail against my kingdom. So sometimes in the Bible, when it talks about the devil or Satan or the serpent, you totally can get the sense that it's a... There's a being right there in front of Eve, and Jesus is talking to the real, personal Satan. But sometimes the Bible uses the the name Satan or the devil, and it's just the general sense, like he's the administrator of the whole kingdom of darkness. Yes, even the verse we read in Ephesians that says, put on your armor so that you may stand against the wiles of the devil. But then it says, doesn't say we're fighting the devil, we're fighting principalities and powers and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. See that? It's, all of it is the devil. It's his administration. It's his princes and generals and governors and so on. How and when did the fallen angels become the princes of national 
groups. If they were defeated in the first heavenly battle, thrown out of heaven like lightning, if they were cast into hell, how did they end up being principalities? How did they come to be princes of Greece and prince of Persia and so on to the point that they had to be defeated at the cross? How did that happen? Um, Why does God have to display his victory to them by us? Why do we have to get caught in the middle of these things? There's some cosmic war going on. I don't want to get stuck in the middle of it. Like, God, just rescue us and then put us behind you and you do your thing. But no, God is shoving us up in front of him. Look at these trophies. Look at this. These are my victory. So they went from being cast out of heaven like lightning and being the losers of the first cosmic war, and then now they're in charge of the earth to the point that Jesus has to come and die and go to hell to defeat them, drag them in triumph, and then display us to them to prove that he won. Thanks a lot, Jesus. This battle, this whole battle thing really stinks. Don't you just win? All right, so, so the question is, how did that happen? What happened there? All right, what I'm about to tell you is probably, probably something you've not heard much, if at all, ever before. It's totally biblical, but I would guess you probably never heard a sermon on this, but it's, it's Bible, so stick with me. Let's go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. This is Moses speaking at the end of his life. It's his last speech before he goes off in the wilderness to die with God. He's recounting all of Israel's history. And he says this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, or the nation of Israel, is his allotted heritage. Moses says, God says, When he divided mankind, when did that happen? At the Tower of Babel. Remember that story? People tried to build a tower to reach to heaven. They weren't just, it wasn't a construction project. It was an attempt to resist God. It was actually an attempt to unify, to be more powerful than God. And we are doing it again. We are more unified than humanity has ever been in world history. The internet is the new Tower of Babel. We are even overcoming the language divisions that God put on us. We are fighting every boundary that God has put on us, every biological and sexual and social and language borders even that God put on us. We are unifying to declare ourselves God and there will be a great judgment coming as we lift ourselves up to reach to heaven like they did at the Tower of Babel. They build this tower. God says, Wow, if they're going to unify like that, there's nobody that can stop them from doing anything. So he divides their languages, and the Bible says in Genesis, he scattered them across the face of the earth. This verse is referencing the same thing. He gave to the nations their inheritance. He divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the people. So after the Tower of Babel, this group moves over here. This group moves over here. This group moves over here, and they get a language, and they get a a land. With borders, And you can see that in history. There was this group of people lived in this territory and they spoke this language. People, tribes in all over the, the world lived in all these different regions and they spoke their own language and they had their own territory. It says, but Yahweh took Israel or Jacob for his inheritance. I, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. I don't want to explain though what it is until we get to the next passage, but 
The Lord's portion, Yahweh's portion, is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. I kept, all the other people got scattered, but I kept Israel for myself. Abraham isn't even born yet, but God's plan was to redeem a nation for himself. With me so far? Okay, Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the midst of the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, if you didn't know that was in there, that's a pretty shocking statement. God sits in the middle of a congregation of other gods. Daniel 7 says, I saw thrones put in place, and in the middle, a throne, and the council was seated. Some of you are scowling. Some of you are thinking. Some of you already knew this verse. Most of you, it doesn't look like you did. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then God is speaking now to the other gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, God's still speaking. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like humans, you will die and fall like any prince. And then the psalmist Asaph speaks up and says, Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. God sits in the assembly of the gods and chews them out. How long will you rule unjustly? I made you gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But now you're going to die like humanity, like any prince. I'm sure that word is not an accident. Back to Deuteronomy 32. When he divided the nations, he fixed the border of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Psalm 82. You are all sons of the Most High. I created you gods. The phrase sons of God occurs in the Old Testament about six times. Job 1 and 2. When the sons of God appeared before the throne of God, Satan was among them and he brought up Job. Who are the sons of God? There's some spiritual group that appears before God. Psalm 82 calls them the divine council. Daniel 7 says, I saw thrones and in the midst a throne and the council was seated. Uh, Genesis 6 says, when the sons of God saw that the daughters of humanity were beautiful, they lusted after them and they went down and took them as wives. The sons of God is a spiritual group They're not necessarily defined as the fallen angels, but I believe they are. Deuteronomy 32 says, God divided mankind, he gave them a language, he gave them a territory, and he assigned them a God, according to the number of the sons of God. In Psalm 82, he's chewing them out because they're wicked. How long are you going to rule these people so unjustly and create perversion and sin and death? I'm going to kill you all. Y'all are really scowling at me. It's because you haven't heard it before. It doesn't mean it isn't true. At Babel, the nations, it's like, fine, you're not going to serve me? Fine, go and serve these other gods. Fine, do it. Have your gods. Worship them. See how it turns out for you. Can you see God talking like that? Does he not talk like that in the prophets? Yeah, he does. I gave them over to the worship of other gods, he says. 
They wouldn't serve me, so I gave them over to the worship of their gods. That's Bible. So we have these gods, little g, that God is in the midst of, and there's a whole bunch of them. And then in the New Testament, they're called principalities that rule over regions as the God of that region. Let's look at this before we move on too much further. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Now remember, the word Lord there is God's personal name, Yahweh. This is Israel talking to her, her God. Who is like you, Yahweh, among all the other gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Next passage, Psalm 86. Among the gods, there is none like you, Yahweh, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, Yahweh, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Yeah, so it, we know the Bible says there's only one God. We, we, we know that. We get that. There's only one God. Deuteronomy says the Lord our God is one. Over and over again, there is no other God but you. But then it says, who's like you amongst all the other gods? That's a meaningless comparison if they aren't real. If I want to get real romantic with my wife and I say, Sarah, you are more beautiful than all the Disney princesses. It's a meaningless comparison because they don't exist. She's going to swoon. Oh, Mitch, that's so wonderful. You think I'm prettier than Ariel and Jasmine. (laughs) So the psalmist is moved to worship God and he says, Yahweh, you are more glorious than all the imaginary, non-existent, superstitious mythologies of all the other world. And God's like, hmm, okay, that really ranks me up there. Who is like you, Yahweh, amongst the gods? It ha- it's a meaningless comparison if they aren't real. But you alone are God. That even the God's name in the Old Testament is the Most High. Who's he the Most High of if nobody else exists? It's pointless. Let's keep going. Jeremiah 2.11. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. So there's no question that the Israelites and the Bible and God is telling us these other gods of all the other nations, they're not gods. They're not creators. But he never, ever says they're not real. He never says they don't exist. He just says they're not gods. They've lied to you. They can't save you. They can't make your crops grow. They can't bring you rain. They can't make your wife get pregnant. They can't give you victory in battle. All these things that you sacrifice your children for, they're not gods. But he never says they're not real. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20. Am I saying that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. Paul says the idol itself, Dagon and Molech, that statue, the totem pole, is nothing. But there's a spirit behind it that is real. And it's evil. And I don't want you participating with it. Galatians 4.8, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. Here again, Paul's writing to us Gentiles. But it's God saying... 
when you didn't know me, he doesn't say you believed in imaginary superstitions. No, he says you're serving those beings, persons, which are not gods, but you thought they were. But he doesn't say they're imaginary, superstitious, ancient world, pagan imaginations. So there is a spirit being that is being worshipped in all of the territorial, cultural gods of the ancient world. So everything I've told you so far is just scripture. What I say next is my own idea. It's opinion. Actually, it came from Sarah um, and our discussions over the years from the days we were homeschooling. And you can be free to disagree with, with this, um, but I think I know the names of the principalities. We know them. It's, it's Molech and Baal and Dagon and Asherah and Odin and Thor and Zeus and Mars and Jupiter and Venus and Saturn and Shiva and Quetzalcoatl and Ahura Mazda. It's the gods of the ancient world are the gods, the spirits that presented themselves to these people in our far, far past. The fallen angels presented themselves to humanity as gods. And the Bible calls them gods. But Yahweh says, you're not gods, I created you all. And because you're wicked, I'm going to kill you. And Jesus defeated them at the cross, and they are disarmed, and they cannot stop us. God tells us in Daniel chapter 10 that there is a prince of Greece. If we had gone to Greece in 400-something B.C. and asked, who is your spiritual prince? Everyone would have said Zeus. Yeah, we know him. We worship him. Our prophets and priests, they commune with him. Yeah, he rules our land. The Bible says he's real. The world has told you that the ancient mythologies are a bunch of imaginary ideas and superstitions, but that's the same people that say that our faith is a bunch of imaginary superstitions. So why would you listen to them? They don't believe anything. Just food for thought. Y'all are really staring me hard. It's okay. The Bible says, Daniel chapter 10, there is a prince of Persia that the holy angels are having to fight. If you'd have gone to Persia in 500 BC and asked, who is your spiritual prince? They would have said, Ahura Mazda. We sacrifice to him every day. He rules our land. He's our God. I see smoke coming out some ears as the cogs are turning for the first time. Revelation 12 says the dragon drew a third of the stars out of the sky and cast them to earth. The stars are the angels. Jesus says so in Revelation 1. In biblical spiritual symbolism, the stars are angels. It's not an accident that 100% of all of the chief gods from every ancient culture, people that never would have come in contact with each other from China to Africa to North America, all of their gods came from the stars. Where did they live? On the planets. That's why the planets are named after the Roman gods. That's why astrology and horoscopes and God says numerous times through the Old Testament, you've stopped worshiping me and on every high hill you commit adultery, worshiping the host of heaven. The host of heaven is the angels. All of the ancient pagan gods were fallen angels. So fallen people were duped by fallen angels into believing that they were the gods They presented themselves as gods to sinful humanity, and we got trapped. 
Lied to, deceived, we became depraved in filth and perversion. And Jesus came to set us free. The New Testament, well, and the Old Testament, the New Testament says your fathers, your ancestors, inherited lies. So our ancestors, wherever your history is from, and I'm talking about thousands of years ago, all of them were lies. Yahweh is the only one who is the most high creator. But all of the other gods are not imaginary superstitions. They're real beings, and they're really, really evil. The Greek myths have been so sanitized for elementary school. I cannot even say publicly what I know from history classes and original sources of the worship of Thor and Odin and Zeus and all the Greek gods and the Persian gods and the Chinese gods and the Norse gods and it is demonic, evil, bloody, insane stuff. It's not something to play around with. Our fathers inherited lies. But now what? Where are these things at now? Nobody's worshiping idols today. We don't have a temple to Moloch or Baal downtown Legrand. Nobody's going down and making sacrifices to Athena or Thor. So did they retire to the beachfront cabins at the Lake of Fire? Did they all move to India? Because you could still go to a temple and worship an idol in India today if you wanted. It's the only place you could, really. Uh, there are thousands of temples, idol temples in India, but really the rest of the world is pretty much cleansed of idol temples anymore. Did they just cease to exist because no one believes in them anymore? No, because God says, put on the full armor of God. You're contending with spirits, principalities and powers, and spiritual hosts of wickedness. So it is true That humanity as a whole thinks we've progressed and matured to the point where we no longer need religion in any sense, that all of it's superstition, and all of it is ancient mythology, including Christianity. And most Christians would say that all of that spirit stuff is sort of hocus-pocus imaginary, and even if it's real, we can't really know much about it, and we don't need to worry about it. When the Bible says, understand it so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil. So there are no gods now, except that there are. The modern world is full of gods, named money and sex and power and politics and fame and sports and fitness and education and entertainment and music and movies and video games. And The Bible says an idol is nothing. It is a morally neutral object. But when it becomes the object of our affection, a evil spirit takes that affection and wrecks your life. Let me read that list again. Money, sex, power, politics, fame, sports, fitness, education, video games, movies, music. None of those things are intrinsically sinful in themselves, but you all know people who have ruined their lives with those things. All of them can be holy and used for good toward God. But when we become obsessed with them, they become our God. An idol is nothing. The object doesn't matter what it is. It's the affection of our heart that is on par with worship. Hello? So yeah, I know you're not going down to the local temple and making sacrifices to an idol. But a lot of you are sacrificing your time with God because you're obsessed with something else. You're giving your money and your children to other things except Jesus Christ. 
It's the priorities of your heart that make whatever your God is your God. All the gods of the modern world are not necessarily anything evil in and of themselves. It's, they become the goal of a person's life, their obsession, their pride, their consuming thought and energy, even their love. When you spend your money and your time thinking and planning and dreaming and watching and doing it over and over again and you take pride in your accomplishments, then it is your God. An evil spirit makes it very real and it gets really filthy and perverted. So, again, money is not evil in and of itself, but you know people whose worship of money is satanic. They will cutthroat anyone to get more of it. Hello? They will sacrifice anything because that's their God. Sex is not immoral at all. It's a creation of God and it's beautiful inside of those boundaries. But if you make it an obsession and lust and pornography and sexual activity becomes the thing you're always thinking about and the thing you're always after, it is filthy, it is perverted. It's wicked. Alcohol has a boundary. Get it outside of that and it ruins lives. Politics and power, government and authority are not wrong, but when it becomes something I will have at all costs and I will ruin anyone's life to keep my, my party in power. It's demonic. These things are, are morally neutral, so it's very easy for people to excuse themselves. Well, hunting isn't wrong. Video games aren't wrong. Money isn't wrong. Cars aren't wrong. The fact that I cheer on my football team is not wrong. Well, it's not. As long as it isn't first place in your heart. But you know the super fan who lives for their team or their athlete. Their team does not know they exist. But they give their lives obsessing all week long and watching the sports shows and the stats and they're giving their time and their thought and their affection to this God and their life becomes worthless. Is it wrong for me to watch a football game on a Sunday afternoon? No, because it happens two or three times in a year because I don't have TV service. But <laughs> My son plays Wii maybe three times a year. There are over 200 divorces in the last two years because of Fortnite alone. Because these guys cannot grow up. There's a study just this week, Fortnite is more addictive than heroin. It's not something to laugh at. It's ruining lives. It's a god. I'm sacrificing my life to this thing. Because I'm obsessed with it. So... The principalities are not out there trying to convince you to sacrifice your children or sacrifice a virgin to an idol or a totem pole. They're trying to get you to give your life over to something that's morally neutral or maybe even good. But it distracts you away from God. I don't have, you don't have time to obey. You don't have any money left over to give. You don't have any attention left to give you wake up in the morning and you start thinking about all these other things that you want instead of i need to get in the word with god then those other things are your idols and there is a spirit behind it as the gospel and the church since jesus since the new testament as the gospel and the church became more and more influential around the globe in world history, I'm looking at 2,000 years of time all at once, as the, as the gospel spread, as truth and light and the message of love and forgiveness and righteousness spread, even the people who are not born-again Christians have a Christian morality. 
So the principality strategy had to change. They're not going to get us to go worship Molech and Baal. But C.S. Lewis is on to something when he says in the screw tape letters, one demon tells another, we just want them to go down that nice, smooth path to hell being a good person. Don't do anything to stumble them. Don't ever wake them up. Just let them think they're a good person and they just waltz right into hell being a good person. Their strategy had to change because Jesus won. He disarmed them. And as the gospel has spread, even non-Christian people have a perverted Christian morality of, of minority rights and women's rights and, and, and we're against slavery and they're what we, we know, the non-Christians know about love and forgiveness and goodness and gentleness and they're for peace instead of war. And, and I told you two weeks ago, it's all perverted by Satan, but... So, so they're not going to get us to, they're not trying to tempt us to sacrifice virgins in the pentagram of candles anymore. It's just be good. Just love these good things. Just think about hunting all the time or football all the time or obsess about a new and bigger house all the time. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not immoral. Hello. If you want to know who people's gods are, if you want to know who your gods are, what are you scared of? If the stock market would crash, if that would make you panic, you know who your God is. Money is your God. If your political party is out of power and that scares you, you know where your trust is. You can see that these women who dress up like genitalia and shriek at these protests and Senate hearings, their God is being attacked and they are terrified because abortion is their God. Oh no, what if I don't have the right to kill my baby? They're not just crazy. They are, their God is being attacked. But if you are terrified to disobey God, then you know God is your God. If nothing scares you more than making him upset, you know who your God is. If you are terrified to not tithe, if you are terrified, if unforgiveness scares you to death, I can't leave this in my heart. I have got to get rid of this or God will judge me. You're on holy ground. You know who you fear. And that is your God. God's commands, even his command for us to fear him, are not to test us to be good people. It's not to him us in and make us obey a bunch of rules. All through scripture, every time Israel is worshiping idols, he says, you're playing the harlot. You're committing adultery on every high hill with every rock and every tree. God compares us serving other gods to adultery. And he is very, very graphic about it. I won't even mention how graphic the Bible is about us cheating on God. And he says it is the same as a sexual union. Do not serve these other gods. Serve me and I will save you. It's not God's selfishness. It's not his control. He wants loyalty and he wants love and he wants union. 
He isn't a spoil sport that won't let you go hunting or watch football. It's don't give your heart to it. Don't trust money. Don't trust your political party. Don't trust your job or anything but me. I'm the one you turn to. Let me have the first place in your heart. Let me be your God. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your teaching us.